Hello and welcome. This is another Books of the Year podcast from your friends at Books of the Year. We are the aforementioned friends. Yes, we are. Uh, we're motoring through this summer. So many titles. Everyone's been bundled up, ready for the holidays, and now they've got all of these massive books to get through. That's right. And yet still TikTok is available. It and is. TikTok available I right think now. It's on Kindle, it's like 99p, which is lovely, but also slightly insulting. That's very, very cheap. Yeah, that work, and you can get it for 99 p for all that blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah, and but, coffee. Yeah. But anyway, it's very, very, very good value. Yes, it is. Do you tweet still? Because you can't. I think he's now. It's now called post, isn't it? So, in other words, the the button that you hit for retweet is no longer called retweet; it's no. called repost. But what is it? What, what? I think it's post. I I'm reading a post. I'm reading a post. I'm reading post. It's just yes. like the 19th century. Correct. So we have some post. Yes. Uh, okay, an ex post. Yes. An ex post. I, I don't think they've really thought through how good the word tweet was. For yeah, just, it was fantastic because yeah, yeah. you can't really say, I've got an X. No, no, because that sounds odd. It does. We've all got X's. We, yes, some people have more X's <laughs> than others, but anyway, Indeed. the whole thing is pathetic. Yeah. Anyway, great to hear. But anyway, Maria, thank you very much for getting in touch. Great to hear Lisa Jewell on your podcast. She's one of my many favourite authors, and this was the first time I ever listened to Books of the Year, having already read the book. Ah, I loved hearing her insights, and it was nice to be smiling in recognition as the story was being discussed. Very intrigued as to the book she's currently writing. Oh, indeed. Yes, you will enjoy that. Uh, an email from Davey. Uh, Dear Simon and Matt and your fabulous production team, mm. added in by said fabulous production team, I had a rare day off last week and found myself in the local bookshop for a browse. Jaff and Neil in Chipping Norton is the shop, by the way, who deserve a mention because they're really great. Uh, I was greeted with enticing displays of books all laid out on tables and shelves, looking lovely, with striking covers and and interesting blurbs. Yes. Ten minutes into my browsing, I realised that all the books I'd been picking up to look at had one similar feature on the cover. They were all black and white with one striking bit of colour, either in the text or as part of the image. And one of those books was TikTok yes. by some bloke called Simon Mayo. Uh, it was a hardback, he hastens to add, not the paperback. But they did have both. And, but no, not, not the Kindle, obviously. Um, Davey continues, It made me wonder, what is it about a black and white cover with a splash of bright colour on it that attracts readers like me? It must be a thing, because I saw quite a few like it. Did you have a say in that cover? And if so, why that design? The, Yours intriguingly. Yes. The paperback is completely different, which is like a smashed watch and someone running away, mm. which is different. But the, yes, the hardback is black and white and orange. Um, I think I think it's orange. Is it orange? I think it is. Do I have a say on the cover? What happens is they send you a bunch of ideas and between you and the editor and the design people, you kind of work on something that you agree with. I mean, obviously, they know more about it than you do. I was about to say that. You're sort of dealing with professionals who know what's going to sell. Yeah. So, so I would have thought you sort of go, well, I might not like that cover, but if you're telling me it's going to sell yeah. with that kind of cover, then I'll go with your... I mean, a, thr a thriller cover needs to look like... I mean, it obviously just needs to look like a thriller, and the title needs to sound as though it's a thriller. And the only conversation I remember having, which I might mention before, was one of the early designs had the House of Commons and Parliament and Big Ben and all mm. that. And I thought that made it look a bit like it was a sort of corridors of power story, which, yeah. it, which it isn't. So I think it's, uh, I think we ended up with a London shot and a Salisbury shot, and Salisbury is inverted. 
because that's the two places where we where we talk about. But to Davy's questions about about the colour, so black and white with a with a splash of with a hint on of it. something. Yeah, yeah, I think that looks quite striking. Yeah, yeah. Because um, as I recall, Knife Edge also had because that was that was the big joke about a you know a crowded that was a great cover yeah train uh, station. And a bunch of people, and someone's got on, and the only person that stands out is the guy with the orange yeah, rucksack. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And there was some kind of strap line about, you know, who knows where the threat is going to come from, to which everyone says, <laughs> it's the bloke with the rucksack. bloke with the orange rucksack, <laughs> yeah. you would uh, imagine. But I do, I think black, something that's mainly black and white, and some some movies do that occasionally as well. So it's just very striking if it's overwhelmingly black and white with just a hint of colour. Yeah, yeah. So my guess, so. Did I have a say in the cover? Yes, but ultimately leave it to the professionals. And I think it's a thing because it works. Yeah, you know? yeah, that'll be uh, why. And it particularly looks good. Although, Steve Kavanagh, the kill for me, kill for you, you'll be describing that a little bit later. Indeed I will. He obviously went for something else. If you'd like to get in touch, uh, you can uh, email us at any time, year at yahoo.com. We're on Twitter, or pathetically, X... Book, at Books of the Year, uh, on Instagram at Pick Any Page, and on Threads. We are on Threads! Lovely. Yeah. Also at Pick Any Page, because that's the same kind of thing. Anyway, let's talk with best-selling crime novelist Steve Kavanagh and pick up that cover design discussion. So Steve Kavanagh uh, has joined us. Kill for me, kill for you uh, is his new book. Steve, hello. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks very much for having me on, gentlemen. Well, it's lovely to have you here. Can I just we were just talking about covers, and so the the paperback of TikTok is different to the the hardback. But our correspondent was talking about essentially covers which are black and white in art design, but then with it like a splash of something. You know? Yes. And he was just saying, "Is it a thing?" To which I was saying, "Well, if you've seen it lots, it probably is. It probably uh, is a thing." What? So, and cover design is very important. A thriller needs to look as though it's a thriller. Yeah. The title needs to sound as though it's a thriller as well. What? When people offer you artwork for your books, what are you looking for? What do you like? What do you not like? Well, I, I, at the start, I had no idea. I just said, you know, whatever you think is best is great. But over time, I've learned um, that the cover is hugely important. So what I like to have on my covers um, is a good title, stands out, a tagline on the cover, and then an image that works both with the tagline and the title. So um, I had a breakout book. My, my fourth book broke out. It was called 13. And the image was a, a jury box with a one single red chair and the tagline was the serial killer isn't on trial he's on the jury and that Perfect. hit That's everything right. really well the image title tagline everything was working together That's also that. the instant sales pitch that's kind of yeah. that's, that's all you need that's that's the thing yeah. yeah, so all of that's very important, but I'm, I'm, I'm always amazed at the amazing artwork that, that these creative people come up with for covers. I, I think it's a hugely important and underappreciated yes. part of publishing. Yeah, absolutely. So, Matt, describe the, describe the, uh, the cover of Steve's book. So, so what we've got is it's a very arresting image um, of um, two figures going up an escalator. However, what you, what you think straight away is uh, that it looks like a man is right at the top of that escalator as we're looking up towards him but the woman who 
appears to be chasing him, is in a green jacket, long hair, and she appears to be chasing him up this escalator. And Steve Kavanagh in big, bold, white letters is right above that. But it's the, well, it's the title and the tagline. So kill for me, kill for you in neon pink. She will kill your worst enemy. All you have to do is kill hers. And then below that, Lee Child, this guy is the real deal, trust me. What does he know? What does he know? <laughs> Come on, Lee. I what do you think? Oh, it'd be great if Lee decides to sort of. I know he sort of passed the baton, yes, over to his brother. But you know, I wonder if he might get bored in his retirement. My suspicion is he absolutely won't, because he knows exactly what he's <laughs> what he's doing. But do you think he can be happy in retirement? I, I I'm going to place money. He comes back and does something else. Do Placing think? money on the table. Yeah. How much money are you going to? I'm going to place. A tenor on the table at some point. So on this escalator, I I guess the guy at the top, he is, yes, I mean, he he is at the top of the escalator, but part of me thinks he's he's turned round and he's looking back down and we've just got it in silhouette and he's actually looking at this woman coming up anyway. Yeah. Well, the original image was a a man following that lady. The, The figures were reversed. And I thought, well, no, this is a, this is a, a female-driven thriller, and part of the, a big part of the book is uh, the main character Amanda, who is stalking this man that she wants to kill. So we reverse the figures, and I think that's a more striking image. And it's uh, I think it's because we were used to see women in peril and covers and men following them, etc. So this one flips. That's it. and it, and that's so much. I think it's such a strong idea. And I would have been put off it if if it looks like woman in peril. Yeah. It just seems yeah. to be used as such a cheap thing in television, in movies as well. You know, because it undoubtedly is true that if you've got a woman in a house and and you hear the sound of someone breaking in outside, it kind of works. It is more threatening if you know that's a guy. Yeah. But the fact that what we've got here is that reversal makes us think, oh, okay, I'm instantly more intrigued. So your art people have done a very good job. They yeah, have, indeed. Thank you very much. So, intru- so introduce us to, you've mentioned uh, one of the characters, take us into the uh, the opening. I mean, we've obviously got a gist of where we are because of the tagline, mm-hmm. very good and very accurate. Introduce us to, to where we are with this. So uh, the sort of pitch, if you like, for this book is uh, two women who meet by chance one night in New York City. And they're both very lonely people. Um, they drink alone. They are alone for most of the day and they find company each other and they learn from each other that they're, they've both had their lives ruined by men and they decide uh, to form a pact. Uh, if you kill for me, I'll kill for you, which leads into the title. And the main character is a lady called Amanda who's daughter has been murdered. The police know who did it, but they can't prove it. And they know this man is dangerous. He's probably killed before. He may well kill again. And Amanda doesn't want anyone else to go through what she went through and this how this has imploded her life. So she takes matters into her own hands and tries to, to kill this man, to, to get justice when justice is denied to her. And that's, and that's how the book... That's how the book opens. So tell us what, um, obviously, we'll go a certain amount into the book. Um, Tell us where where you take it from there and the kind of reparations that she has to to make and what the police suggest that how she continues your story. Well, there is is a police detective who is um, who's been helping her. 
Um, he's called uh, Detective Farrow. He is uh, was in a very interesting character to write. Um, I, I find the best police officers have a massive amount of empathy. And they spend more time with victims of crime rather than do chasing after bad guys. And I wanted to reflect that in this book. So this character, Farrow, is a nickname uh, in the police department is St. Jude, which is the patron saint of hopeless cases. <laughs> and uh, that he takes on the cases that other cops can't close and he closes them. Um, but he suffers very badly from a bad back. Because uh, at the time I was writing this, I had a bad back. So I gave him my pain. Um, and he can take medication to ease his pain, but that dulls his mind. So he doesn't take the medication. He suffers for the victims because he wants to help them. And he carries these cases on his back. So he's been helping Amanda. And part of the book, we're a little way in, and she has to go to a group therapy session for bereaved parents, um, sort of an enforced counselling. And she meets another woman there who's almost in the exact same situation who has lost a child and knows who did it. And that's where they meet and that's where the story kicks off. So it is, uh, I mean, it's very much inspired and it's referenced in the book by Strangers on a Train by Patricia Highsmith and the Hitchcock adaptation. So I'm doing my own riff on that premise. Did it, did it kind of arrive fully formed to you or did you come, you know, did you think, oh, Amanda, that's quite interesting, you know, almost that image that's, on the front cover with a woman stalking a man. Was that where it started or how did it arrive? It, it, it really was started by um, by Patricia Highsmith. I, I obviously had read Strangers on a Train. I'd love the Hitchcock uh, adaptation as well. And Patricia Highsmith wrote a really good slim volume on writing suspense. And that's, that's what I write. So I read it and learned a lot from it. But in that, she talks about her own writing very candidly. And she says, Strangers on a Train, my first book, I was never happy with it. It relies so much on an incredible coincidence. And in, in that story, it's two men who meet by chance on a train and just so happen each of them wants to kill someone and they just so happen to tell each other that. And she she wasn't happy with it. And she says she got that the idea of swapping murders from a short story uh, which appeared in Black Mask magazine, I think in the 1930s. So it wasn't her original idea, and she did her own riff on it, and I thought, well, I wonder could I do that, but I don't want to do it with two men, uh, because in Strangers on a Train, their motives for killing the people they want to kill are not very... They're not very moral, put it like that. Uh, they're not seeking justice. It's very much for their own ends. Well, I want to do it with two women, two female characters. And I wanted the reader to really identify with these characters and to be willing them on, to be right with them and think, yes, you're doing the right thing. And I'm desperate to find out if you're going to do this or not. It is it's absolutely a killer premise um, uh, that, that you've alighted on here because, uh, uh, listen, most of us know the strange on a train and how and how that works out. You, as you say, you, you reference Strangers on a Train. In fact, the DVD and the book turn up in this book. Yeah. But the reason why I liked it is that you, you put a whole new twist on it where you pull the rug from under our, underneath our feet uh, midway through the book. I, I the, the part of the Strangers on a Train idea, in other words... Uh, I want you to kill someone that I need killing and I'll kill someone that you need killing mm -hmm. and we'll both have cast iron alibis and neither of us can be really connected to to the victim at all. It hangs on one question, which is, and, and this is right at the centre of the book where it certainly was for me, it hangs on can you trust 
the other person that you're entering into this pact with? Can you trust them? Was that something that you were playing with when you when you were writing this? Very much so. Um, I mean, anyone who's read any of my books, um, trust is a big thing uh, in terms of characters. And you have to always question, uh, you know, I, I'm usually withholding something important from the reader, you know, behind my back and showing them something else. Uh, I, there's a what lot a of... sly mis- man you are. I, <laughs> yes, I know. It's it's terrible. Uh, so I, I, I love misdirection in novels because that's those surprises and twists really excite me when I read them. So that's what I want to write. Um, so yes, all of that was in play when I was, when I was writing the book, um, because I love those moments when you get hit by a surprise. It's so shocking. You, you drop the book. I love that when I read it. So well, you go back a couple of pages. Yes. <laughs> that bit again. Jaw on the floor. So that's, that's really one that I want to achieve with this one and to try and do it not just once, but multiple times. If you are a student of strangers on a train. So we, I th- the guys are Guy Haynes and Charles Bruno, mm-hmm. who meet. If if you know that story, is it a primer for this one? Uh, it, you have a very basic idea, but again, I'm trying to do something very different uh, with this story and my own twist. Um, uh, so it, it, that is the the very basic setup of it. But I've made it more contemporary. It's it's all, and I also wanted to make it real. Um, none of these characters, Amanda, is you know. Uh, for all intents and purposes, an ordinary person. You know, she's a mother. She was a care home manager. Um, she's an aspiring artist. Uh, she has no special skill. She's not Liam Neeson or Jack <laughs> Reacher. So she applies, uh, you know, what she knows. Like, for, you know, she went to night school. She worked her way up through planning um, uh, and working and hard work. And it's how an ordinary person finding themselves in this terrible situation would react. And really what I'm doing is I'm putting the reader in the, in Amanda's yeah. situation. What would you do if you're in this exactly. horrible scenario? And I, and I think, you know, and I'm speaking here as, you know, an arch liberal human rights defender, etc. And you get, well, when you're watching a movie or reading a book, all of that is suspended because, yeah, 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 he deserves to die. <laughs> she deserves to die. Yeah, get them all. Take them all out. Yeah, absolutely. I, what about just, oh, yeah, okay, there's justice. Okay, fair enough. Okay. Everyone, are you in favour of the death? But no, I'm not. Okay, fine. <laughs> but what you succeed in making the reader think of is, what would I do? If I if I was, a, she, you know, and that scenario that you, that you painted, Steve, is... How how do we know that we wouldn't be reacting exactly the same as her? Mm-hmm. You know the person who is responsible. They're getting away with it. You've lost everything. Of course you're going to... You know, there is a, an inherent justice uh, in in revenge. But right at the very beginning of the book, the, the quote, um, the Walter Scott quote, revenge the sweetest morsel to the mouth that ever was cooked in hell. <laughs> uh, and the Euripides one stronger than lovers love is lovers hate incurable in each the wounds they make so it's just that whole idea of revenge which is behind so many books and so many movies is such a great and rich area to exploit because I was reading this book thinking yes I would if I was Amanda White maybe I would do exactly the same thing that's it that, 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 that's what I love from stories you know um I, I learned this very powerfully. I went to the cinema um, many years ago now with a friend. Uh, we were living in Cardiff and we went to see uh, The Patriot with Mel Gibson. And actually learned this lesson from Jason Isaacs. 
Because as you will know, Jason Isaacs uh, plays a really bad villain Mm -hmm. in that movie. And uh, again, apologies for spoilers, but there's a part in that movie very early on where he very callously shoots Mel Gibson's son in the movie. Like a, and he's only like a 10-year-old kid and he's exceptionally cold and callous and he's a stupid boy and shoots the kid dead. And at that point, my friend turned around to me in the cinema and said, if Jason Isaacs doesn't die horribly by the end of this film, I'm going to wreck this cinema. <laughs> and those emotions can be so powerful uh, and really, you know, really propel you through a story. So when I can, I, I like to play on that. With did, uh, did you ask yourself the question as the writer, having set up this scenario, you know, would you be a revenge killer? That's the thing. I mean, uh, under these circumstances, under these circumstances, that's the thing I don't know. And it's certainly a question that uh, our detective Farrow uh, asks himself because uh, his partner, um, Karen Hernandez, you know, she answers it very clearly. If I knew there was someone really dangerous, a killer out there, and I could take them out, um, and I could get away with it, knowing we can't prosecute them, um, yes, I would do it. Uh, and she asks Farrow the same question, and he says, I don't know. I'm still asking myself that question. And I don't think it's a question you can really know unless you're in that scenario. Uh, and that's what I'm hoping to try and do with the reader, to put them in that scenario to, for them to ask themselves those questions. Well dodged, Steve, just in case. Yeah. You know, yeah. you don't, want this, don't want this interview being brought up in court <laughs> 10 years' time. And w- one thing we've not mentioned so far is that the book is set in America. Now, yeah. you know, you don't need to be an, uh, an expert in accents to know you are not American. So it struck me that, and this is the first of your books that I've read, although I understand that the others are, are based in the States, that's... It felt like quite a risk, really, because I know, let's say an American was writing a book and setting it in London or setting setting it in Liverpool and decided to have characters talking in a certain way. I would be, well, no, that's that's not what you would say in that situation. It felt absolutely authentic to me, but it must. There must is there not something at the back of your mind that says, "Oh, I really hope that this is how a, an audience in America will will feel that this feels authentic." Well, um, I, I've played this game before, and um, so uh, my my uh, this is a standalone novel, but I mostly write a series about a uh, former con artist who becomes a trial lawyer in New York City. And I wrote the first three books in that series without ever having visited the States and this got away Flynn. with it. Eddie Flynn. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but I, it was because I grew up reading American crime fiction. I grew up watching Starsky and Hutch and Kojak on TV. And uh, I, you know, I loved those shows. So, the, uh, and on movies as well. So the American uh, accent and the American dialect I think is probably just as ingrained in me as, as any other. So, um, yes, you do have to be careful and sometimes you do make little tiny mistakes, but I, I take care to try and do everything I can to make it as authentic. And so far I haven't been caught out and most readers are surprised to learn that I'm not American. I tell you, the, the, the point where I was like, he must be American, was when you had a character pouring water on their cereal. I was like, what on earth is that <laughs> madness? Pouring water on cereal. Does and anyone always, do that? Well, apparently they do in America. But I, oh my goodness, it was, it was almost dropped the, dropped the book on my lap. When someone starts pouring water, water on cereal. Yeah, I think that may slightly be because maybe she didn't have any milk. Okay, <laughs> but even so, we'll have it dry. Then you have don't have dry. to put vodka oh, on it or something. <laughs> really, but, you know, putting water. Well, presumably you can get, you could claim 
uh, trips to America against tax, though. Yeah. Y- yes, yes. Research so purposes. If anyone from her, you know, His Majesty's Revenue Service is, is listing, <laughs> yes, that, that is perfectly allowable. Uh, can I ask you about um, another writer who I think you're, I think you're a fan of, um, James Lee Burke? Yes. Um, who I interviewed, I've interviewed him a couple of times, and he's always utterly delightful and has got the most fantastic laugh. And he also came up with my favourite title of a, of, a, of a book. I guess whether you call it a thriller, I mean, it's, a, it's one of his detective stories, but it's, but it's called, if I can remember, In the Electric Mist with Confederate Dead. Yes, Into the Electric Mist with the Confederate Dead. Yeah. Well, no, but you see, you, I think you've just made a mistake. Oh, is there it, isn't in, a the. There isn't. Oh, it's not? Because I, I, there was a kind of a Twitter exchange in the days when it was Twitter, and I, I think I, I just finished the book and I took a photograph of it. And I think, it, I think it's in the electric mist with Confederate dead. And Ian Rankin replied and said, and in your mind, do you always in, put in a the? Ah. And, I, and that's absolutely right. So I'd always thought of it as in, in, electri- in the electric mist with the Confederate dead. And there is no the. Wow. Anyway, but the, electri- the, the combination of the electric mist and Confederate dead just is... Mm. Fantastic. Now, and I think there's a James Lee Burke connection with this story. Is that right? Unless unless I saw an interview with you, you basically were following in James Lee Burke's footsteps. Yes, that's correct. Um, yeah, I'm a massive fan of James Lee Burke. Um, he's, you know, a lot of crime writers would say he is absolutely number one. Um, and he's certainly one of the best writers in any genre. But uh, he... Um, at one stage, uh, when he was a, a much younger man, he was in San Francisco and he was he had published a book called The Lost Get Back Boogie. Uh, his titles are amazing. Um, and that was a book which he had tried to get published for 10 years and could never get published. It was eventually published and I think it was um, nominated for the Pulitzer. Uh, and then he started, was offered to write a crime series. So he went to City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco and then walked up the hill uh, to a cafe outside a church and sat down and wrote the opening lines to The Neon Rain, which is the first Dave Robichaux uh, thriller. And uh, I retraced that, thinking that maybe there's some kind of aura <laughs> or something special. So I went to City Lights Bookstore and bought a couple of books. Uh, I think I bought one of James E. Burke's book on a Chester Himes that I didn't have, and a notebook, and went up to that same cafe and sat down and wrote some of the opening lines for this book, um, which was a lovely experience. Um, and Mr. Burke has since uh, has read that interview and has since been in contact to say that he was uh, very honoured by that. So he's, he's as well as being an incredible talent, he is also a really lovely man. Yeah. I I think he's getting on a bit now, I think. But he um, he the first of his books that I uh, that I read, you were talking about titles. He wrote this book called The Tin Roof Blowdown, yeah. which was a novel which was set against the, in inverted commas, backdrop of Hurricane Katrina, which is, of course, not just the background, but actually very much yeah. uh, in the foreground. But the idea of trying to solve a crime whilst Katrina is actually... But but there's a, what a fantastic title, The Tin Roof Blowdown. And the quote on the front was from Bill Clinton, which said, his best yet. You go, uh, oh, OK, fine. <laughs> well, I'm going to start with his best yet. And then there was another, I think it was a series of short stories he wrote, which was called Jesus Out to Sea. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds... That sounds fantastic. Are you a titles man? You know, I mean, this is a this is a fantastic title, but titles really matter. The artwork really matters. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm terrible at titles. 
Um, my titles, I really, really struggle with. Um, I can usually get most things right, but when it comes to titles, I struggle and I need help. So there's usually a big debate and there's, you know, 20 or 30 different titles uh, in different lists and we sort of choose one. So yeah, it's trying to get one that, that sort of works with a tagline and a, uh, a, and a potential image, but I do sometimes struggle badly with titles. I'm not James Lee Burke. Black Cherry Blues is another brilliant title of his. He's, you know, he's an amazing writer. I wish I had his uh, his gift for titles. Yeah, he's fantastic. There is there is always a point in in uh, books, particularly, well, always with fictional books and mostly with thrillers, where the writer will bring in a little fact. And the number of times I've, because I, I always assume when I'm reading it, oh, right, that fact is real. That's, that's absolutely the case, because obviously the writer has done some research and found this unearthed this little gem that they're now going to share with us. The number of times we've brought this up with writers and they've said, no, 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 I made it up, completely made it up. <laughs> so uh, I have no idea which way this one, this one's going to go. But yeah, you reveal at one point that medical examiners, when they turn up to um, murder scenes in the States, are always the ones driving the smartest cars. They are the ones, if you want to see who's who's the medical examiner, who's the ones stepping out of the BMW 3 Series or whatever. So is that is is that something you just, is from, from the back of Steve's mind, or is that is that actually the case, that that's a, a good rule of thumb? No, well, I was told that that is the case um, uh, by a, a few people. Um, so when I get a little fact like that, and it just, it adds a little, and it's only small, it takes a line or two to say, but it adds so much detail and depth to the story. And bring, those little details, I think, bring so much reality to the story. And when I find out something like that, something really cool, I it's, you know, writers are magpies. We take that and we put it in. Um, so there was a book I wrote called The Accomplice. And there's a part in that. And I've had people from New York emailing me saying, I did not know that. I'm so glad you put this in this book. Um, if you're ever in Central Park uh, in New York and you're lost, you can find out exactly where you are by looking at a lamppost because all of the lampposts in Central Park are numbered. So the first, uh, there's four numbers. The first two numbers say that 72 and then the next one is 39. Well, you are on uh, 72nd Street, parallel to 72nd Street, and 39 is an odd number, which means you're on the west side and uh, okay. and so on and so on and even numbers are on the east side so you can always know where you are exactly in central park because it can be very disorientating by just looking at a lamppost could this book i mean we've addressed the the new york at belfast thing but this book could be set in belfast or london it possibly could be or uh, edinburgh or edinburgh well exactly for me, New York City was was just, it's such an amazing place. And for me, it's a city full of incredible possibilities. I think you get the impression that anything can happen in New York City. And the pace of that city and, you know, the romance and the buildings and everything there suits the type of book that I want to write. So I set quite a lot of books in New York. My series is mostly based in New York. But um, it also helps me as well. So say, for example, I'm, I've, n- I've never been to the States before. Uh, my first three novels say I'd set the book in Austin, Texas. I would need to take a good bit of time describing to the reader 
this is what Austin looks like. Mm. These are the people that live here. This is the sense of the place. Whereas I don't have to do that with New York because whether you've been to New York City or not, everyone knows what it's looked like. You've seen Ghostbusters. <laughs> you've watched <laughs> yeah. movies. You've watched TV shows. Everyone has a great sense of that city. And all I have to do is give you that little sense of it and then not get in your way of your own idea of what that city is. Was there, a, because it's a standalone book, I just wonder whether there was even a momentary thought in your mind that maybe you could set it somewhere else? Or is it just, no, I'm Steve Kavanagh, I'm in New York? No, no, I mean, I have set books somewhere else. I I, am, I, I set a book in, in Alabama recently. Um, uh, so I, when it comes to settings, um, I am careful with the settings and, and sometimes uh, the plot or idea of a book dictates that it needs to be set somewhere else. Whereas this one, uh, I wanted a fast, pacey, exciting, twisty read and New York City just seemed perfect for it. Also, there is an important pivotal scene in the book where uh, it takes place in a Grand Central Station on the escalator. And that's why we have an escalator on the cover of the book. And a man is going up the escalator and there's another character in the book, Ruth, who's coming down the escalator. And I just loved that station. It's incredible looking yes, at it. It's just yeah. a perfect place to set a, a little set piece in a thriller. I have one more question, which is a, another sort of... We've talked a, about one cultural reference in the book, which is obviously the Strangers on the Train book and the movie. Uh, I want to ask you about Dolly Parton, who uh, comes up quite a few times towards the end of the book, and I'm not going to give anything away, but she comes up so many times that I thought, Steve's got to be a Dolly Parton fan, because there's no no way otherwise that she, she figures so so prominently in the book. Am I right? Well, I think everyone is a Dolly Parton <laughs> well, there fan. there you go. That's, that's why Dolly Parton's there. I was looking for uh, an artist um, who I think everyone, I don't think anyone would find Dolly Parton objectionable. She's such a lovely person. She gives so much money to charity. She does a lot of stuff. She gives away millions of copies of books. Um, she's just an amazing person and an incredible artist. So I wanted a universally adored artist, um, who was perhaps of a, a slightly older generation and Dolly Parton is perfect. Um, Matt and I both do a drive time show, Greatest Hits Radio, and our our producer is the biggest Dolly fan uh, in the world. <laughs> and in COVID, she she was so thrilled that she got the Dolly Vax, yeah. <laughs> the one the one that Dolly Parton gave all that money yeah. to. That's that's what she wanted. Was it the Moderna? I think it's the Moderna. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. that's what she wanted. She got the Dolly Vax. So like that's <laughs> that's an incredible level of devotion. You know, most people will go. Can I have the best one or the one with the, you know, with the best stat? No, I want to have the one yeah. uh, that Dolly, uh, absolutely. It's like Tom Hanks. You know, everybody thinks Tom Hanks is great and he's yeah. a lovely person. Dolly is that person. She is that person. And that shows she fit that role perfectly. Was this, you, you said it's a standalone, but was it always a standalone? Did you think would this fit in the series is there any or was it always going no 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 this is i'm going to i'm going to come back i'm going to do more with eddie but actually this is was it always going to be this book no it was always going to be a standalone um is that quite refreshing for you it, it is I, I, this is my my second standalone novel um i try to learn from writers here better than me um so i look up to writers like mark billingham and michael connelly uh, and john connelly who have long running series but they will occasionally go and write something else they'll write a standalone and it brings in a new cachet of readers, perhaps. It's something slightly different. It's still a Michael Connolly book, a Mark Billingham book. It'll still be, you know, uh, really well-drawn characters. There'll be an intriguing situation. It'll move quickly. So I think when I do a standalone, I learn something else. I'm writing from a different point of view. 
And uh, I, I'm, like, I'm bringing something new to the book and I'm taking something away from that that I've learned that I can bring back to the series. So it helps me, I think, become a better writer, which I'm always trying to do. I'm always trying to write a better book. So d does it make you want to... Do you look forward to the next Eddie book with sort of... Is there more of a buzz about getting back into the kind of familiar groove of writing that character because you've been away being unfaithful uh, with this book. Yeah, yes, yes. And certainly my readers are very, are, are very keen. As much as the, the, there's been a fantastic response to this one, people love Eddie Flynn. And uh, I really enjoy writing him. He's such a fun character to write. Uh, and uh, yes, again, I bring new skills back, but I am refreshed. Uh, because the great fear is, you know, you write, uh, you know, if you write four or five books in a series in a row, there's always the fear, maybe this one isn't as good as the last one. So I, I'm, again, it's it's writing the best book that I can at the time. And um, that series is great. Michael Connolly um, said when he goes back to his series character every time, he said it's like putting on a familiar coat, mm -hmm. which is very comforting. But the thing you have to do is you have to find new things in the pockets, which I, I think is a perfect analogy. I can't say it better than Mike. So that's what I try to do. I was, we br brought this up with Michael Connolly when he was on last, I think, when Harry Bosch, didn't take the vaccine and it was I was outraged really because I kind of thought he he would absolutely I mean I think he does later on uh, uh in the book but it was a fantastic you know you kind of mm. but you're Harry Bosch of course yeah. you're not going to be an anti-vaxxer are you this would be terrible and I think he wasn't there was just like some reluctance in some parts of the LAPD Anyway, but you kind of you we have expectations of these people don't we we absolutely do and we become very attached to them uh, uh, as readers um i remember i, re I read michael's uh, books out of order so i didn't come to his first novel the black echo until uh, i read maybe three or four of them and uh, i was, remember reading the black echo and it was about halfway through there was one of those descriptions of harry bosch standing in the mirror and combing his hair, he's just out of the shower, and you know the description of him. And then there's a description of him brushing his moustache. I almost <laughs> dropped the book. Exactly. What? <laughs> what? Harry Bosch doesn't have a moustache because in the other books he didn't. So I, it really busted me out of the book. But uh, so I'm, I've learned that from Michael and uh, Michael and Furness. Uh, 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 the the Bosch tash is some debate among Bosch fans. But uh, the Bosch Tash, the Bosch Tash is a, a, some debate. But I, I, I learned from that, and I, I, again, I learned a lot from Michael because he's such a brilliant writer. But I try to describe my characters lightly, so the reader has that strong image and is personally connected to them. I haven't told them exactly what this person looks like in detail, so they have created that own image in their mind, and they're more readily identifiable, and it becomes theirs. Yeah, and then if you have the good fortune to have a TV series like. Harry Bosch has become in my in my head now. Titus Welliver is yeah. is Harry Bosch. Perfect yeah. casting, and that's who I see now when I'm reading. Yeah, books. that's the thing. Um, and I, I know, for example, Ian Rankin doesn't watch a lot of the adaptations because he's afraid that the actor yes. will in, infect his yeah. vision of, of who Rebus is. But no, Titus is a brilliant, brilliant piece of casting. I guess is it's an Eddie Flynn book next. It's an Eddie Flynn book next. Yeah, I'm writing it at the moment. What can you tell us about it? Um, well, I Come can, on, I, you're, you're busting to tell us. I'm yeah. busting. Well, I, it's not finished yet, um, but I'm, I often start books um, very much like Harlan Coben. Uh, what is the worst thing that can happen? So this book I'm writing at the moment is who would be the worst person to witness a murder? And the book is set in West 74th Street in New York City, which is like a little millionaire's row. 
uh, at any point there's $30 million worth of cars parked in the street. Very exclusive. And there is a, a young girl there in her early 20s called Ruby Johnson who used to live in the street but doesn't anymore. And Ruby works as a nanny and a cleaner for lots of families in the street. She knows all their diaries pinned to the fridge. She has access to their Google and their Alexa. She reads their mail. She knows everything about them. But there's something wrong with Ruby Johnson. And as Ruby's leaving uh, one of the houses one night, she witnesses a murder. And she knows who the victim is and she knows who the killer is. And she calls the New York Police Department and gives them the name of an innocent man that she says anonymously, it's an anonymous call, she says, this is the person that committed the murder. And Eddie Flynn has to defend that person. While Ruby is working in the background as the case progresses, she has uh, uh, evil machinations uh, in the background for her own purposes. That sounds fantastic. When's that out? Come on, hurry up. Uh, Hopefully this time next year. Okay. Will you, well, uh, that doesn't count as the interview for that book, so you'll need to come back <laughs> yeah. and talk about that. Oh, I would. Uh, absolute pleasure. Steve Kavanagh's book is Kill For Me, Kill For You. There'll be another chat uh, with Steve, which will come out in a few days, which will be uh, the Q&A, always very revealing. Uh, so look out for that. But for the moment, Steve, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.